0: We were young until we went but the books stay the same re-reading, re-reading the red books.
1: what an excellent time for us to be turning to something that is just not at all connected to anything in our daily lives
0: God I am so excited to talk about this book oh good I feel the weight given who talk it is and given the nature of his stories and how beloved his stories are mm-hmm. and the fact of how how much is in there both on the surface and kind of lurking underneath mm. and i want to give a shout out to kelsey my friend who gave me the greatest birthday gift that a man could receive which is a book called An Encyclopedia of Tolkien, the history and mythology (laughs) that inspired Tolkien's world. Oh, that's great. Are you guys the kind of nerds that are good at computers, or are you the kind of nerds that smell bad and wear capes? If you're a fan of Tolkien at all, I cannot recommend this book more. It's by David Day, and it's full of great tidbits about all sorts of things and where everything is from. For example, if you wonder, hey, what's up with that beorn character? beorn Biorn? Bjorn?
2: I think
1: it's probably <laughs> Biorn, but we can go with Bjorn.
0: Actually Bjorn makes sense, as as you'll see in a second, because there's an entry in this Encyclopedia of Wonderful Things about Bjorn and his uh literary background. Quote, Bjorn's appearance in the latter half of The Hobbit establishes the fact that we are now firmly in the heroic world of the Anglo-Saxons, for he appears to be something approaching a twin brother of the epic hero Beowulf. What? No, no, no. No, no. he's
1: nothing like Beowulf. No, no, no. Like, I I, I strongly object. You You
0: just don't care! care. Uh, Can I finish? Hello? Can I I finish? Indeed, (laughs) Tolkien gives his character a name that while it sounds and looks a little different from Beowulf's, ends up having much the same meaning via one of the author's typically convoluted philological puns. Bjorn's name means man in Old English. However, in its Norse form, it means bear. Meanwhile, if we look at the Old English name Beowulf, we discover that it literally means Beowulf. Beowulf is a kenning for a bear. Beowulf and Bjorn then both mean bear. Bjorn, moreover, is a keeper of bees and a lover of honey. One might say that Beowulf and Bjorn are the same man with different names. Or in their symbolic guise as Beowulf and Bear, they are the same animal in different skins. And then it goes on to explain how Bjorn is drawn from the historic berserkers who were Germanic warriors who believed that they could change into bears.
1: I mean, I agree that the name is a reference. Like, I think Tolkien's out here having fun time. I just don't think in terms of, like, actual character action any of that they're the same we
0: can't yes
1: but before we get sidetracked by this entire argument do you want to actually start the episode
0: yes i suppose we should start the episode (laughs) is it my turn yes we've done all the episodes out of order so like it's gonna be strange anyway yes hello (laughs) welcome to reread the podcast where we talk about books we've read before And our childhood. Allegedly. And on this episode, we are going on an adventure. We are starting with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. You have not read The Hobbit before, right?
1: No. We are fudging our rules because I have read most of the Lord of the Rings when I was a kid. However, I did not actually read The Hobbit, or for that matter, Return of the King. But, you know, two out of four books in the series is like enough, right? Well, I guess technically two out of five if we're counting The Cimmerillion, but we're not reading The Cimmerillion, so...
0: Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves.
1: Oh, are we, we didn't discuss reading this for earlier.
0: <laughs> I mean, rereading The Hobbit and then reading through this encyclopedia. Oh, it has inspired me. But this is going to be a big issue with this book and this uh, series is that we are going to be sidetracked because there's just so much to talk about. Yes. Even just inside of the books themselves, like we're inevitably going to be talking about lore of the rings when we talk about the hobbit and vice versa yeah we're going to be talking about this sort of larger lore that tolkien created we are also hopefully we can keep this to a minimum but we are also going to be talking about the movies to some extent yeah because i think for you you, and Mm -hmm. for a lot of people out there their only experience with the hobbit unfortunately is through the terrible, terrible adaptation. Which, just to put it out there, since I don't want to really talk about the background of that too much, go watch Lindsay Ellis' video essay about the making of The Hobbit trilogy. She does a much better job than we ever could in breaking down what the f*** (laughs) happened with those movies.
1: Also, she's just great.
0: That's true. But also, inevitably, we're going to be talking about Everything that has ever been inspired by Lord of the Rings in the <laughs> yes. fantasy world, which is literally everything post Lord of the Rings, yeah. Terry Pratchett has has a great quote. Hold on, let me... Ugh, I wrote it down. Quote, Tolkien has become a sort of mountain, appearing in all subsequent fantasy in the way that Mount Fuji appears so often in Japanese prints. Sometimes it's big and up close. Sometimes it's a shape on the horizon. Sometimes it's not there at all, which means that the artist either has made a deliberate decision against the mountain, which is interesting in itself, or is in fact standing on Mount Fuji, end quote.
1: Yeah, that's a a good one.
0: It is a very good quote.
1: Yeah, if you're talking about the genre of fantasy, you're in essence talking about a genre that was codified in the Western world by Tolkien. The interesting thing for me reading this is I was reading it and trying not to read it also like this way in all three ways. (laughs) I was reading it one as a prequel to Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. reading it two as one of the books that would go on to inspire a lot of other books and therefore sort of like the establishment of like a genre or tropes or anything like that.
0: Including other books that we have read for this very podcast, which I I apologize, we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis too. <laughs>
1: yes, we we will also be talking about Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, but yeah, because third, reading this as a children's book as opposed to like Lord of the Rings as adult fantasy, mm-hmm. and so I was both reading it that way and also trying to resist reading it that way. I'm not sure how much I succeeded <laughs> on on any fret. But I think that those are the three ways that like just come up in terms of reading The Hobbit. I think it's hard to read The Hobbit and not be keeping those three different things in mind.
0: Yeah. And I think another thing to keep in mind as we go ahead is that I'll explain myself in a second. But The Hobbit is not the Lord of the Rings. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. The reason I say that is because even though it's quote unquote a prequel... It's a very different story from Lord of the Rings, and the characters themselves are very different from the versions you see in Lord of the Rings. So Gandalf especially, I'm I'm sure we'll be talking about Gandalf. The Hobbit's version of Gandalf is (laughs) nothing alike to the version of Gandalf that we see over the course of Lord of the Rings. And I think that's where a lot of people get thrown off, especially... People adapting this book into a godforsaken trilogy, and in fact, here's a little fun bit of trivia. So after Tolkien wrote *Lord of the Rings*, he went back to *The Hobbit* and started to rewrite it to fit the tone that he established in *Lord of the Rings*. But after a while, he just gave up on it, and I think I think it was his wife basically told him like, "You can't do that. The Hobbit is not *Lord of the Rings*. It's you're just." banging your head against the wall for no reason. And so he gave up on that endeavor, which is evidence of how different these books are and how they you kind of have to separate them from each right. other. Well but at the same time you can't.
2: <laughs>
1: right. And and during that revision process, I know like my <laughs> my little edition, which is the cutest edition ever, and I will be posting <laughs> on Instagram, has in the beginning like a note on the text that does say that Although he didn't, like, fully rewrite it. Especially chapter five, Riddles in the Dark, was revised in the second edition. It's the chapter with Gollum.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: the ring. And he did revise that so it, like, made more <laughs> sense with the following story. So, like, the edition I'm reading, and I'm sure the edition you're reading as well, they're not the original version of the text. They are the version with the revisions that do bring it a little more in line with The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So not a full refitting but certainly Tolkien did make some changes.
0: I know that Gollum... Oh my god, we've been talking for 10-something minutes and we're already getting sidetracked. Anyway, I know that Golem originally, he it was suggested that he was some kind of goblin himself mm. and basically just a cannibal. But of course, you're right. He He's been revised. There's hints at his backstory. That get fleshed out in Lord of the Rings that are now present here, establishing him. Which actually, it works splendidly here. Those revisions mm-hmm. are are so cool because it creates. We'll get more into this, but it creates this <laughs> fascinating contrast between Bilbo and Gollum himself. And yeah, uh, <laughs> okay. Let's, let's stop
1: getting sidetracked. Um, why don't we go with your memories of this in your childhood, because you I believe did read this when you were a kid. I
0: did. I I read The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion as a kid. I have always loved this world, and coming back, it was so nice to there there's more world building in the first five pages of this book than in the entire series of Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> an exaggeration but oh my god is it? <laughs> it's it was so refreshing to jump into this world and just have a this feeling of how expansive this world is even though we're going on this tiny tiny adventure you always feel this world is huge and filled with history and part of that is that Tolkien had already written out a lot of that history beforehand he knew what he was doing which, hey, C.S. Lewis, if you're listening out there, <laughs> take some notes.
1: Leave, leave Clive alone. We've dunked on him enough.
0: Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's so much fun jumping into this world again. I haven't reread these books since childhood. So right now, my image of, of Middle-earth is New Zealand. <laughs> it was nice to go back to the original, but I am so curious... I, I, in fact, talked about it with my friends. I'm so curious what <laughs> you thought. I'm a little terrified. <laughs> I really want you to like this book.
1: <laughs> so my feelings are somewhat mixed. I wondered if this would happen because, okay, so my background is that I've read The Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and I read them when I was eight years old and like couldn't understand any of it, as I think I've mentioned on the podcast a number of times before. But, like, I specifically remembered not liking Tolkien's writing in a stylistic way. And then in the last year, I read his very influential essay on Beowulf. I was just blown away by his writing in that. The writing of that essay is absolutely beautiful. And, like, even if you're not into literary criticism or, you know, Beowulf, I highly recommend reading it. Because it's so good. I came back into this being like, okay, so I knew I didn't like his writing as a kid, but I know I like his academic writing as an adult. Yeah. So I was very curious about, like, how I would feel coming into this. And I think it's hard, too, because, like, I, to you know, to some extent, know the story going forward. So I think it's hard not to read it through that lens as well. But I really, really appreciate Tolkien as a world builder, as a story crafter, like, the amount uh-huh. of setup he does, the structure of this actual story, plus, like, the unintentional foreshadowing for Lord of the Rings. And maybe it's better to say that he deliberately goes back to this and builds on it for Lord of the Rings in a really clever way that we can certainly say Clive never did for Chronicles of Nardia. <laughs> so, like, I really appreciate his craft. I still don't love his actual technical writing in terms of fiction it was this weird hang-up where i liked all of the elements but i didn't always appreciate the way it was being told to me so i have i'm very mixed because i enjoyed this in so many ways but i also feel like i would have enjoyed it if someone with a different style had written it like more
2: mm.
0: disappointed
1: <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> I'm so sorry to bring this to your doorstep. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, no, I I mean, I think the language is very, this is both a compliment and an insult, I suppose, but it is very (laughs) plain. It is not flowery. And I think that was a deliberate choice on Tolkien's part because he did, he had expressed disdain for that kind of writing in fantasy. He didn't like highbrow language in fiction
1: i have no problem with the plainness of the writing at all i think that's totally fine it's the ways in which i guess the balance of what how what he's writing about and where his focus ends up being in terms of his writing is what bothers me um because he's very he's very detailed about certain things like very detailed about certain things in a way that's like i i totally see that he was like, you know, a linguist in many ways. He's got that like hyper focus on certain aspects. But then like he also sometimes the dialogue was good, but most of the time he just chooses not to write the dialogue. And he's like, and they all just decided blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, I would have liked to see that. (laughs) I would have liked that dialogue, Tolkien. So like where he spends his time in terms of his writing, I think was my biggest thing. And it's, that seems to be, at least from what I remember of the other books, like that's just how he, like, stylistically is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting because rereading this book so much felt like he was just creating the world upon which he would then launch other writings that he wanted to do. There's so much focus on the landscape, the geography of this place, and it really does feel like. It's just a primer for creating Middle-earth and just getting that image out onto the page. And the story itself is kind of secondary to that. So you get... This is an issue. We have 13 dwarf characters in this book. You hear maybe from four, five of them actually speak? I believe it's five. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, part of it is just like... What I love about Tolkien, and what I hate about him, too, is that he just loved telling his own little jokes with no care if other people (laughs) thought they were funny, which I love. I do the same thing. It's this kind of wonderful expression of nerdery where he's just like so obsessed with wordplay and puns and obscure etymology that no one is going to appreciate this, especially kids are not going to appreciate the linguistic (laughs) tricks that he's playing. And even when you break them down, like in this encyclopedia, which again is wonderful, there are two separate entries for Bilbo and Baggins, both explaining the weird (laughs) wordplay that Tolkien is using. So like Bilbo, apparently, is derived from this archaic like 17th century word describing a short deadly sword the kind that were made in this like spanish province or city called bilbao Mm -hmm. and it's like that's fascinating does it add to the story (laughs) no of course not (laughs) it doesn't make anything more interesting in the story but it's so clear that tolkien thought that was so clever so he's just gonna put it in there which I have a love-hate relationship with that kind of style of writing. And I think where this uh where I like this more versus The Chronicles of Narnia is that The Chronicles of Narnia were written with a clear agenda of promoting Christianity. Whereas this it really did feel like Tolkien wrote it first and foremost for himself. And you really at least I really get the feel of just how much he loved this world because oh boy does he love this world does he talk he talks about this world in the way some write about their lovers <laughs> it is hot and heavy so if you're into landscapes oh baby is this the smut for you I'll be in my bunk but, <laughs> but for for people who might be and i think you're more of a character driven reader yes. if you're in it for the characters you're not necessarily gonna get that from this book
1: and I mean I think we could oh I don't want to go off on the Tolkien versus C.S. Lewis train so I'm gonna derail that here and say shall we do the summary
0: Yes, (laughs) before we
1: get further in (laughs) let us summarize
0: let's summarize
1: we open oh my goodness this is uh, again I'm sorry I'm gonna just have to call this out because I think this is great We open with the chapter An Unexpected Party, which of course is mirrored in the first chapter of Fellowship of the Ring, which is a long expected party. Already we're off to a great start. (laughs) But we open on Bilbo Baggins, who is a very good sort of hobbit. Uh, He lives in a very nice little hobbit hall in the hill, and he's good and proper and he wants nothing to do with those nasty adventures. Although, in his bloodline, there is um, some adventurousness lurking there on the Took side of the family. So, we're told that right up front, so you know it's going to be important. And he's just out smoking his pipe.
0: Smoke weed every day. On
1: his front step, Just, you know, <laughs> enjoying the day. When, who should arrive? But Gandalf, who Bill has never met before. Mm. Gandalf hasn't been to this area for a really long time. Bilbo vaguely remembers him showing up when he's a kid because he talks about the fireworks. The fireworks, yes. Yes, but Gandalf has a reputation for stealing away good little hobbits and (laughs) taking them on adventures. Uh Uh-huh. And Bilbo, like, greets him, is very cheerful to him. Gandalf's kind of sassy back. And it's only when Bilbo realizes that Gandalf is here to find someone to go on an adventure that he's like, oh, I don't want anything to do with you. Gandalf, for reasons of his own, maybe just spite, is <laughs> like, this is the hobbit I'm gonna drag on an adventure. And puts a secret mark on his door. Um, and this mark leads to the next day, just a whole bunch of dwarves showing up unexpectedly at Bilbo's place and just walking right in like they own the place and like they're expected. And Bilbo is, um, such a polite little hobbit and such a good host. <laughs> He doesn't, like, try and kick them out or or question them. He's like, ah, I guess they're here for tea, I guess. And just (laughs) welcomes them in and tries to feed them, all the while getting more and more anxious. And then Gandalf shows back up and reveals that there's a lot of shenanigans in here. I'm just going to cut out for the sake of keeping the summary somewhat Uh brief. Yeah, yeah. And it's revealed that these dwarves, led by Thorin, are trying to reclaim their ancestral mountain, um, which was taken over by a dragon, And they need a burglar to help them get their treasure and their mountain back. And Gandalf has decided that Bilbo will be their burglar. For whatever reason. (laughs) And Bilbo's like, what? (laughs) What? I didn't sign up for this! But he kind of gets roped into it regardless and ends up going with them. This is very much like a, a journey narrative for most of the book. So there's a lot of little episodes. So like the very first one is they run into some trolls. They're saved by Gandalf. And then they're trekking along and they decide to camp at this place in the Misty Mountains and goblins attack them. And then they're saved by Gandalf. And then during their escape from the goblins, Bildo gets thrown off a dwarf's back and rolls around and pits his head and is knocked out.
0: Which then leads to perhaps the most... Famous chapter from this book. Yes. Riddles in the Dark.
1: The iconic meeting with Gollum.
0: It likes riddles.
1: Uh, Before this, Bilbo has found the ring. What we all know is the ring. He has no idea. But it is very much a ring, an invisibility ring. So him and Gollum exchange riddles, and... Bilbo is uh, getting a little nervous because Gollum's like... Yeah,
0: the deal they made is that if Bilbo wins, Gollum will show him the way out of the caves. If Precious asks and it doesn't answer, we
2: Eats
0: it, my Precious. Oh, I say! <laughs> so the stakes are very high.
1: And, you know, they're both doing pretty well. Having a good time.
0: Away. eat it,
2: my precious.
1: Having a good time. Away.
2: eat it, my precious.
1: Having a good time. It's it. Having a good time. Eat
2: it. Having a, a good time.
1: Bill was making up some of these riddles on the fly, which is crazy. We can't get into, like, people making up riddles and songs on the fly, because that's just, like, the most unrealistic thing about this entire story. Okay. But, um... uh,
0: well, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Finally, Bilbo panics, and is like, sometimes he has the bad habit of, like, saying things aloud when he's, like, really thinking to himself. So he's trying to come up with a riddle, he's nervously, like, touching his vest, and he's like, oh, what's in my pocket? And Gollum takes this for the next riddle. Bilbo happily rolls with it. (laughs) The answer is, of course, a ring, but Gollum has no way of knowing that. So Bilbo wins, Gollum's pissed. And he's like, let me just go back to my little island in the center of this lake we're chatting by, grab some stuff, and then I'll take you out. Although Gollum is secretly planning to put on the ring and murder Bilbo because he's not a creature of honor. (laughs) Bilbo kind of has some suspicions about this. When Gollum comes back, they get into a little fight because Gollum can't find the ring. And so he's like, oh, oh no. What if what was in his pocket was the ring? So they have a little squabble over that. Luckily, Bilbo is able to get out of this by putting down the ring, becoming invisible, and going away. There's a little bit of, like, a chase sort of sequence, hide and seek in the dark. But by following Gollum to the exit, where Gollum thinks Bilbo's gone, Bilbo's able to find the exit, get past the goblins, and escape both Gollum and the goblins, and then reunite with his party, now with one invisible ring. (laughs) (laughs) I should also mention that at this point he's already has obtained the sword that will become known as Sting which was in the trolls treasure chest and he's already discovered that it can sense goblins it's not very important at this point in the story I just want to establish he has it so now he's reunited with the party and they are on the run from the goblins who are chasing them and they end up uh, also being chased by some wargs which are like giant wolfy things Turns out the wargs are aligned with the goblins, and they were planning to go attack some villages. So there's this whole like evil conspiracy thing going on. The dwarves, Gandalf and Bilbo, are chased by the wargs up some trees. Gandalf fights back by throwing pine cones he set on fire at the wargs. (laughs) But this kind of backfires when the goblins show up and are able to put the fires out, except for the ones by the trees that our party is up. So they're, like, gonna roast them alive. But then, luckily, they're saved by the eagles. (laughs) This is the first uh, eagles' es machina (laughs) of the entire
2: series.
1: (laughs) Soon to be reprised many times.
0: To be fair, it is set up because we do cut away to the eagles who notice there's something going on. The eagles hate the goblins. They see these people hiding in the trees, and they're like, well, we're going to do this to spite the goblins more so than to rescue people. So It we, is
1: not ridiculous.
0: It establishes the characters of the eagles, which, by the way, we should mention that all the animals can talk more or less. Yes. Either they have their own language that people can understand or they are capable of speaking in human speech. So the eagles are capable of talking is what i'm saying
1: <laughs> yes and they they do talk so the party is rescued by the eagles and then they stay with the eagles for a night and then the eagles set them down further along on their way and gandalf's like well i'm gonna get you to a certain place but then i need to peace out because i have something else to be doing with my time so good luck y'all but first he gets them to uh bjorn who we've already uh, chatted about a bit. (laughs) And there's this very entertaining sequence where like... Oh,
0: so entertaining.
1: Bjorn's not like a very social creature and not really into having guests he knows nothing about. Certainly not a party of like 15 people. (laughs) So Gandalf goes up with Bilbo and uh, introduces themselves and then starts telling their story. And like every few minutes, two more of the doors will show up and Gandalf keeps... Fudging the number of dwarves in their party so that <laughs> one, like Bjorn keeps getting, like the story keeps getting interrupted because more dwarves showing up, but also like Bjorn is accepting the members of the party gradually. So it's not like all of a sudden 15 people. It's like, oh, two, then four, then six, you know?
0: <laughs> it's delightfully entertaining because Bjorn just gets annoyed first at like the growing numbers, but then he just gets annoyed that the story keeps getting interrupted. Because he just wants to hear the story. And at a certain point, every time the dwarves come in, they, they always say, like, at your service. And then they say their names. And eventually, Bjorn catches on. And he's like, just shut the <laughs> f*** up and sit down. I want to hear this story. <laughs> yeah, it's very clever on Gandalf's part.
1: Yes. So they stay with Bjorn for a few days. And then he helps them get to Mirkwood, where they have to pass through. Gandalf is like, I'm going to peace out now. Have fun. Stay on the path. Really stay on the path. Bad idea to leave the path. And then you're like, ah, yes, they will be leaving the path.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: And sure enough, after a certain amount of time in Mirkwood, which is like a really gross forest, it's gloomy, it's huge, it feels bad, there are things watching them all the time. Another fun place. But they end up, you know, running out of food and they see like some lights off the path and it looks like some people might be there. So they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna go beg for food. Please,
2: sir. I want
1: some. More? So, they, like, try and go get to the lights, and then, like, almost as soon as they are there, the lights wink out. And they're lost, because they can't find their way back to the path. So they're like, it. But then they see the lights again. <laughs> they're like, okay, this time Bilbo will go first. They get close, send Bilbo in, as soon as he's... In, lights wink out again, and he's, like, suddenly asleep. They wake him up, they wander around More, and then they're like, the lights! Again! <laughs> <laughs> because all good things come in threes. Of course. This time they send Thorin in. Once again, he gets in, sees that it's elves, they're feasting, lights wink out, no one can find each other, Thorin is gone, Bilbo's gone, all the dwarves. It's kind of implied that they're, like, in the same space but can't hear or see each other. But yeah, so now we are back with Bilbo. He wakes up alone, lost in these woods. Ends up getting attacked by a spider, which he uses Sting to kill. And we're like explicitly told this is a huge turning point for him. Take your weapon. Break me down with all of your hatred.
2: And your journey towards the dark side will be complete. He
1: now thinks of himself differently now that he's killed this spider. He's he's come into his own by murder. (laughs) And is (laughs) that just
0: What? i I'll quibble with the way you're painting this, but sure. Well
1: No, it's it's self-defense. It's fine. (laughs) I just thought it was interesting that this was the turning point and not him like, you know, out riddling Gollum or like jumping past all of the goblins or anything. Mm -hmm. But no when he used his sword to kill something. Uh, (laughs) Anywho, (laughs) he ends up discovering that the other dwarves have been taken by more spiders. And we could talk about how Tolkien clearly has a huge fear of spiders some other time. Yeah, And so he comes up with a very uh, clever plot to help rescue the dwarves. So he puts on his ring and goes around shouting and throwing rocks at the spiders and taunting them. And basically uh, gets them to chase off into the woods after this invisible person. And then he doubles back and rescues the dwarves, but there's a lot of dwarves and they're not super helpful once they're, like, rescued because they've been drugged by spider poison. So he's not able to do it in time and the spiders come back. There's more fighting and Bilbo ends up doing more shenanigans where he, like, puts on the ring and takes it off and tries to, like, divert them. And eventually they succeed in getting away from the spiders. Yay.
0: Only to be captured by the elves. Oh, no. Yes. But at that point, they don't care because they're so... They're literally like... They're so hungry. They're, just, they're starving and dying of thirst that they're just like, please take us and feed us. <laughs>
1: yes. And Bilbo, I should have mentioned, is not captured by the elves. He still has on the ring. So he's invisible. And I also discover what they had realized right before they got captured is that Thorin was not among them. And it's because Thorin has already been captured by the elves. Um, And he's currently sitting in the dungeon because he refuses to tell the elf king, the woodland king, why he's been traveling through the forest. And the dwarves do the same when they arrive. They refuse to, like, say anything. So they're just shut up in the dungeons. But Bilbo is scurrying around, you know, trying to figure out a way for them to get out, bringing messages between the dwarves. Eventually, he realizes that there are these huge casks of, like, wine and other food that the elves receive from humans and then they like send the empty barrels back down the river. So he's like, ah, if I could get the dwarves in the barrels, we can escape down the river, no one the wiser. So luckily for him, he has, comes up with this plan and very shortly afterwards, there's a good occasion for him to take action. So he rounds up the dwarves and gets them in the barrels. Only to realize, as they're being, like, lowered <laughs> in, that he forgot to get a barrel for himself. A problem, so he just, like, jumps on top of a barrel. Or he tries to jump on top, he just grabs the sides. Luckily, that works, and he's later able to scramble up on top of the barrel. And they uh, travel down river. I'm not sure how long the dwarves are stuck in the barrels. It might only be a day or so. It seemed like a long time.
0: They were put into the river at night. They reached the whatever stopping point. Right. And I know Bilbo gets out and kind of wanders around and then jumps back in. And I think it's another day. And then it's a second day on the re- I think they're, they're stuck in there at least two days, maybe three days. Yeah,
1: And, like, they can't come out. They don't have any food. <laughs> yes. So, like, please imagine the misery all of these doors are going through, which, like, they express when they're finally released when they reach uh, Lake Town. Because it sucks.
0: Oh, my aching tentacles. And
1: was like, I don't see you coming up with an escape plan. Stop critiquing me, <laughs> and
0: I And I feel it necessary to interject here. This scene of them traveling down the river in barrels, it is not an action scene. There are no elves running down after them, shooting arrows at them, while they're also being chased by orcs who are trying to kill them. This is just them floating down a river. Okay, Peter Jackson. <laughs> uh, anyway.
1: Anywho, so they arrive finally at Lake Town, which is the closest town to the mountain they are heading for.
0: The Lonely Mountains, yeah.
1: And Thorin announces himself. He's like, hey, I'm here to, like, reclaim my birthright. And this town has a whole bunch of stories and legends about the dwarves coming back and making the rivers run with gold and all of that. Although the, uh master of the town is not very pleased with this. He agrees to house the dwarves and feed them and get them supplies so they can set off in this last part of their quest. So after a little bit, they head off to the mountain. They are planning to get in through this back door that they talked about in the very beginning. So they go around hunting around the mountain to find the door and it takes some time, but eventually they find out where the door is. And they're like, cool, Bilbo, your time has come. Get in there. <laughs> and Bilbo's like, you assholes. Because, <laughs> um, like, none of the dwarves want to go with him. One of them, Balin, I believe, yeah. agrees to walk a little ways with him. But then it's up to Bilbo. So Bilbo goes in. He's like, wow, a dragon. Wow, lots of gold.
0: Big wow!
1: <laughs> Gonna take this cup as proof. Getting back out of here. So he takes back the cup and they're like... Yes! Bilbo! Bilbo's already starting to realize, like, there's some problems with this plan. He cannot steal, like, a cup a night and, like, have this, you know, work. Like, what was the plan to do with the dragon? Any of that. And these questions are made more urgent because when the dragon smaug...
0: Smaug.
1: smaug <laughs> Awakes the next day. He's a dragon. So he can tell someone has taken this cup from his horde. So he gets super pissed.
0: And you don't want to piss off a dragon.
1: No, no. And he scours the sides of the mountains to try and find them. Um, Luckily, all the dwarves are hiding in the tunnel, so they don't get found. But he does find their ponies. These poor ponies. So many ponies meet awful ends in this book. Yeah. So many dead ponies. (laughs) Ain't
2: nothing funny about that.
1: And they're like, okay. Bilbo, why don't you sneak back down again? Let's see if we can come up with a better plan, see if, like, what's going on. So Bilbo sneaks back down again, and this time Smaug is waiting for him. And they have a little conversation in which, you know, Bilbo has moments of being very clever and moments of being very stupid. But Smaug is able to realize some information about what's going on, but he also misinterprets something. So he understands that it's dwarves that are coming to try and steal his treasure, but he believes they've been put up to it by the people of Lake Town. So after Bilbo departs, he goes around, destroys like the side of the mountain, so Bilbo and company can't get back out. And then he flies off to Lake Town to like burn them all to death and eat them. As you do.
0: Well before we get into that, we should also note that In this sort of exchange of riddles, this is the second round of riddles that happen in the book between Bilbo and Smaug, where at first the way Bilbo gets out of it is he is very complimentary of Smaug. And there's a point where Smaug is like, I'm going to show off my belly, which has just been encrusted with gold and jewels and gems. And it's at that point that Bilbo sees there's one part of his left breast that is uncovered presumably vulnerable to which bilbo explains all this back to the dwarves when he gets away and there just so happens to be this bird a thrush chip, 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 chip. sitting nearby who apparently is listening to all this as bilbo explains this one weakness and then flies away to lake town and you're like what's that about well we'll find out soon enough
1: Yes, you don't get to find out immediately because first you get Bilbo and the dwarves deciding to venture back down into the mountain. Smaug is away at this point, so they're like, woo! During this point, I should say that Bilbo steals the Arkenstone, which is like this jewel that was super prized by the people of the mountain. I'm not sure. I don't think it has any special qualities. It's just a really, really nice jewel.
0: It is referred to as the heart of the mountain. It seems to have... Some mystical properties, but not anything that actually lends anyone any power. It's just right. prized as the crown jewel of the hoard of riches here, and Thorne interprets it as that's the claim to his throne, basically is having the Arkenstone because that it was um i don't know if it was found or forged by his grandfather or somebody in his line, but it, basically that's been passed down, and so he would give up everything else. To only have the Arkenstone, and this is when Bilbo realizes he's in some uh, deep because <laughs> he is stolen yeah. and hidden away. And there does seem to be this alluring power of it, like it Bilbo can't turn away from it. Any, any, the idea of giving it up is hard for him to fathom. It's kind of like a proto ring, mm. in in a manner of speaking. But we'll get. More into right to that, and
1: the entire <laughs> horde to some degree seems charmed because, as we find out later on, like there's something about the dragon sitting in it so long like creates this kind of spell of greediness, yeah that is attached to it.
0: It's interesting. I'm not sure if like the way to read that, if it's like an actual spell that has been cast or if it's just this mythology that's been attached and projected onto. The riches because the dragon has kept them for so long
1: well i feel like there's definitely some sort of like um magic that is passed on like just through the dragon being there because like they also talk about how later like the master well, we're, we're skipping ahead like succumbs to this same sort of spell thing
0: yeah and i guess it, it should be sorry this is this this part of the book is so fascinating to me and, and we'll really dig into this but one, one of the powers that Smog has is he's capable of mesmerizing people. There's something about his eyes mm-hmm. that's, that has this mesmerizing quality that Bilbo almost falls prey to. And so perhaps some of that has literally rubbed off onto this gold. And we are talking about a sh- ton of gold. I mean, this entire cave is just filled with riches and gold and everything and everyone. Really loses their mind over it.
1: Yes. So, while our people are exploring all of these riches, well, they get out, and they, like, hike up to this watch point to, like, peace out and watch for Smaug to come back. While that's all happening, uh, Smaug is over there attacking Lake Town, killing a lot of people. Luckily, the Lake Town people are prepared. They're, you know, notified his coming, so... They have strategies, but they're still not doing too hot until this guy, Bard, who is descended from the lords of the town that was by the mountain that, like, Smaug also killed.
0: Yeah, from Dale. Yeah. Um,
1: is told by a thrush <gasps> about the weak point, and he's like, all right, I got my special, my special arrow that's, like, passed down to my family that I've always retrieved. Fly true, shoots at Smaug, hits him in the vulnerable spot, kills him.
0: Woo! Victory Screech! Except for the part where the literal corpse of Smog lands into the middle of the town, basically just destroying the whole thing.
2: Well, yes, but
1: <laughs> as they point out, they're like, fields are fine. You know, like there's a lot of other stuff that's intact. I think they say that like 85% of them survive. Great. I
0: believe it's 75%. Which did make me laugh. It's like, yeah, only 25% of people died. Just one (laughs) force. You know, what are you complaining about?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So after that, there's a little minor power struggle where like people want to make Bard their new king. And the master of the town is like, hey, 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 forget about that. You know whose fault it is that like this has happened to us? It's those dwarves. Those dwarves went in. They mucked (laughs) up. The dragon has attacked us and destroyed our city, so, like, we should go get that gold because we deserve it, and also they might be dead anyways, so let's just go get the gold. Um, and they're soon joined by the Woodland elves, who have heard of Smaug's death and are coming to also get the gold, and the two of them ally in their mission to go get that gold. Back with our main party! <laughs> They are told by, uh, the Thrush tries to come back and tell them, but, like, none of them speak Thrush. So they're like, hey, find us a raven, because we speak raven. Thrush goes off and finds a raven. The raven's like, hey, 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 hey. So, the dragon be dead. Good for you. My advice would be, like, to give some money to the, like, people, because they, like, helped kill him. And, you know, they kind of have suffered, and I think that would be a great thing for you to do. And Thorin's like... No. (laughs) No, he will not. No gold for them.
2: I won. The money is mine. I have the money. The money is mine. I got it for the first time. I got the money.
1: I'm actually going to have you go to my cousin, Dane. Dane, I believe.
0: In the Iron Hills, yes.
1: Tell him to come with his army because we are not letting them have a single smidge of that treasure. David's like, I really think this is a bad idea, but okay, I guess I will enable you. So they go back down into the mountain and they board it all up. Even though Bard comes and tries to be like, hey, look, some of the gold in there's kind of mine by right, anyways, because it was like the people of Dales, and like I am descended from the Lords of Dales, so like all I'm asking is for like one twelfth here. And Thorne's like, no. Bilbo at this point is starting to be a little worried because he was not, he did not come here for a war. I mean, he barely came here willingly at all. Yeah. But he definitely did not come for a war. So when things get bad enough and Thorin is just like totally refusing and Bilbo is getting concerned, he decides to sneak out and he makes this deal with Bard. He's like, hey, I have the Arkenstone. I know that Thorin will trade anything for the Arkenstone. So I'm going to give it to you. You use it to like bring about peace. That he sneaks back into the mountain for some reason. Well, mostly because he wants to make sure his friends are okay. It's it's a nice. It was a nice thing to do. It, bad choice, but nice thing. to do. <laughs> and then when Bard comes to bargain the next day, Thorne's like, "How, how, how could you get this Arkinstone? How, how?" And Bilbo's like, "It was me." I'm not sure again why Bilbo decided to speak up at this crucial moment in time again because he's probably a good person. Yes, but. Thorne's like, you know what? I understand that you've helped us a lot, so I'm not going to kill you, but you get the f*** out of my sight. <laughs> I, I want nothing to you, do with you. You are a traitor. You were disgusting to me. Get the f*** out. Bubble's like, oh, Jesus. Okay, okay. And goes out and goes with the late people. Oh, Gandalf has showed back up, too, by the way. He's back. Woo. Hooray. So the other dwarves roll up, and they're about to like maybe get their fight on when Gandalf's like, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Remember those goblins and those wargs (laughs) that we kind of pissed off? They coming. They coming for that gold.
0: And boy, are they coming. There's a literal horde of goblins, like so many goblins, that they come over the mountain itself. It's It's a quite bad position for the allies in this situation.
1: Yeah. It's not good. It's not good at all. Luckily for everyone, the dwarves are immediately like cool gonna ally with the humans and elves because better than than the goblins everyone
0: hates goblins yes
1: yeah (laughs) so this is the battle of the five armies we have everyone fighting Bilbo gets knocked out pretty early on so like we don't actually see much of it but we do get told and like things are looking pretty desperate for our people when guess who shows up the eagles
0: (laughs) the eagles are coming
1: Yes, which Bilbo actually says, <laughs> the eagles are coming.
0: And uh they do indeed come. That's when he's knocked out, so that's when everything blinks out. But the eagles are the uh, fifth army of this battle of five armies. And uh, they all together kick some goblin.
1: Yes, but unfortunately, when Bilbo wakes up, Thorin is dying of the wounds he sustained in the battle. And he has just enough time to make up with Bilbo before he passes on. Also dead in this battle are Philly and Killy, who are the two, like, youngest dwarves and some of the only people we've heard speak. And with that, Bilbo's like, okay, time for me to go now. And. He takes a little of the treasure, not quite the one fourteenth he was promised, but, you know, he's like, how would I get it all back anyways? Doesn't matter. So he just takes a little treasure and he and Gandalf just say their goodbyes, blah, blah, make their way back finally to Hobbiton. And the story ends with one of the dwarves, uh, Balin, coming and visiting Bilbo and the two of them reminiscing about adventures. And it's very sweet.
0: Yeah. I actually love that framing device because it's the standard of wrapping up the story. Where is everybody right now? Which most stories I feel just, it's like the end credits thing where it has the the text saying, this person Mm -hmm. went to jail for 20 years and this person moved to the Bahamas and this person died. You know, it's that sort of thing, but it's framed as Balin and Gandalf specifically visiting and reminiscing and telling what's up. There's just something so sweet about framing it in that way. It makes it feel so much more personal. And I'm shocked that more people don't do that with these kind of stories.
1: Yeah. Well, it's nice to know, too, that, like, Bilbo did see at least one of the dwarves again. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they went on a really long journey together. (laughs) It'd be kind of sad if he never saw any of them again. And it is quite a trek, so.
0: It does, in, in the book, take a year to trek there and back again. A hobbit's tale
1: oh i should mention when bevo actually like arrives his um house and all (laughs) his they're being auctioned off because he's presumed dead and we're told that it takes a few months for him to not be dead anymore (laughs) like to prove that he's alive and it's (laughs) which i thought was a kind of amusing little anecdote
0: it was amusing and he's like lost his reputation because everyone thinks he's an adventurer now and he's the one that goes to rivendell to visit the elves there and goes off on adventures and everyone's all he's just cracked in the brain and uh setting things up for the sequel but yeah they're just there's so many delightful little details in this book
1: yes i mean i think some of my the things i enjoy the most were some of those like little details Although I just want to, before we get too far into it, call out my like very favorite line of the entire thing, which is when um, Smaug discovers that the cup is missing. We're told his rage passes description—the sort of rage that is only seen when rich folk that have more than mm. they can enjoy suddenly mm. lose something they have long had but never before used or wanted. And I was like, "Talk and go in."
0: No. Yes. <laughs> oh God. This, it's overwhelming because there are just so many things because I love that scene. I, Smog, it's fascinating because Smaug <laughs> in this book is only, he's maybe only in it for maybe 5% if even that, mm-hmm. but he's always alluded to every time the adventures happen. And I think it's worth mentioning that this adventure that Bilbo goes on is not a fun adventure. They're constantly in dire straits, whether they're being attacked by trolls or losing all of their food supplies or being imprisoned by goblins and about to be murdered by goblins or about to be murdered by wargs or about to be murdered by spiders or about to be murdered by elves or about to be murdered by men or about to be murdered by a dragon. They're always on the verge of being murdered.
1: (laughs) And they're also just starving all the time. They're so hungry. All
0: the time. And it's constantly referring to, like, how Bilbo wishes he was back home. Which, you know, I appreciate the way Tolkien frames traveling in this book. Because everyone says that traveling is so much fun. But sometimes traveling isn't fun. And it is one of those things that it's it becomes more fun in retrospect. And there's, mm. there's a great line in here. I think it's
1: the same... yeah
0: it's it's in the same it's during the battle of the five armies where it's bilbo's talking about how or the narrative's talking about how terrible it was which for bilbo let me see if i can find the actual
1: i i know the exact line i was gonna call out that same exact line because i thought it was so good
0: it is so freaking good let's see
1: yeah i'm looking too.
0: the uh, uh here we go oh go ahead
1: it was a terrible battle the most dreadful of all of Bilbo's experiences and the one which at the time he hated most, which is to say it was the one he was most proud of and most <laughs> fond of her calling long afterwards, although he was quite unimportant in it.
0: Yes, I love that. Like, <laughs> It just, to me, feels so much more honest and that, to me, really grounds the story, which is something because this is a story full of goblins and elves and dwarves and dragons. But it it never feels so fantastical that you can't, like, relate to it. And I think a big part of that... God, I feel like I was making a point about smog to begin this. (laughs) Anyway, but... uh, (laughs) And I love, like, casting Bilbo as the hero of the story. There's nothing heroic about him. And I feel like that makes this story so much more relatable that we're telling this story through Bilbo
1: and I think it's nice, too, because, yeah, Bilbo starts out as this very ordinary little hobbit. Uh-huh. I think we can all relate to him just wanting to, like, be home and enjoy the comforts of his home and not necessarily wanting to go tramping about, you know, stealing gold from dragons. But one of the things I did appreciate that I wasn't expecting was uh, Tolkien's character work with Bilbo, which is, it's it's not the best character work in the world. I don't think anyone's ever going to call Tolkien a character writer. But I did appreciate the way in which Bilbo slowly becomes more and more competent and grows as an individual. So, you know, I was at first irritated um, in the beginning when Gandalf keeps saving them. I was like, I would like someone to be a little more active. And he saves them at least twice. But then it's nice because that becomes a mirror for the ways in which Bilbo then saves the dwarves twice in Mirkwood. And you really see Bilbo grow. And gain confidence. And at first, he's nothing but really a liability. But first, he wins against Gollum and gains a little confidence there, plus his invisibility ring. And then he
0: murders a spider. the
1: spider yeah. in Mirkwood and starts coming up with these very clever little plots. And it's interesting the ways in which he grows into the burglar. We got a burglar! So he really begins to embrace that role and begins to, at one point, The narrative straight up says, like, when they're at the mountain and trying to figure out what to do with Smaug, all the dwarves are looking to Bilbo as their leader. I'm
0: in charge. Do you feel in charge?
1: And so the ways he grows into that role are really wonderful. And the ways the narrative gradually builds that and has, like, a nice little mirroring and parallels to show that. But then also the way at the end, like, he's ready to go home. He's ready to settle back into his normal life with maybe some differences, but he hasn't grown so much that he's no longer recognizable as the Bilbo of the beginning.
0: Oh God, I love that so much. It's such a nice gradual character shift and you really get Mm -hmm. a feel of how the adventure is changing him. But what I also love, other than everything in this book, is how uh, all those pieces of his character are foreshadowed in really interesting ways. So at the beginning, as you mentioned in your summary, there's allusions to the uh, Tookish side of Bilbo's family line and how that's that's the side of his family where all the quirky characters and the adventuring characters are from. But there's also this like very out of the blue mention of his great grand uncle, Roar, who... (laughs) <laughs> Apparently he was very big for a hobbit. He w- he was the leader or the general in this legendary battle of the green fields against, I think, some goblins that came and attacked yep. Hobbiton. So you get this implication that in Bilbo's bloodline there was this grand heroic figure. It is fun that these pieces get set up, and so you you were <laughs> you joked in your summary that like for some reason gandalf picks bilbo to be the burglar and the book never actually explains that decision explicitly but you can sort of read into the text if you want that like of course gandalf knows this history and perhaps that's part right. of the reason why he decided to Pick Bilbo as the burglar.
1: He also mentions that Bilbo is Belladonna Took's son, and we're told that Belladonna was um, a rambunctious <laughs> hobbit. <laughs> so, specifically, one of the things Gandalf says during their first meeting is that he's like, To think I should have lived to be good morninged by Belladonna Took's son. So, it also seems like, yeah, that not only this character in Bilbo's ancestor, but, like, also his mother. Maybe Gandalf saw something of her in him and was like, yes, this one.
0: This one. This is the girl. If you allow me to read the entry on Baggins from this, an encyclopedia of Tolkien, the family name of Tolkien's principal hobbit derives from a double source, the English Somerset, uh, forgive pronunciation, The English Somerset surname bag, meaning money bag or wealthy, and the term Baggins, meaning afternoon tea or snack between meals. And is certainly appropriate for a prosperous and well-fed hobbit. But at the same time, the entry goes on to say, Tolkien always maintains that his tales were often inspired by names and words. And indeed, in the jargon of the 19th and early 20th century criminal underworld, there's a cluster of terms around bag and baggage that link up with one or other of the various highly specialized forms of larceny. Three are especially noteworthy. To bag means to capture, to acquire, or to steal. A baggage man is the outlaw who carries off the loot or booty. And a bagman is the man who collects and distributes money on behalf of others by dishonest means or for dishonest purposes. So clearly, there's a lot of wordplay that If you're, like, a weirdo nerd linguist, you would pick up on, and I think that you can pick up on that feeling throughout the story, but um, it's kind of all there present at the beginning of the story. And isn't it just nice to have a fantasy story where everything is planned out? Isn't that just refreshing to read, Morgan? (laughs) (sighs) (laughs)
1: i mean yeah one of the things i did enjoy is seeing the little things that he clearly went back to to help him set up lord of the rings and that was really pleasing to me to see the continuity of thought although there certainly is there are ways in which um this is not necessarily like you said it doesn't feel like they're entirely the same canon but it feels like He did as much as he could when crafting Lord of the Rings and keeping that story in mind to pick up elements from The Hobbit and reuse them in ways that you're like, okay, so Gandalf seems really different, but maybe, you know, those like hundred years or so were really influential. (laughs) He just really changed. (laughs) And there is the mention that like what he went off to do was deal with this necromancer that was in the south, I think, of Mirkwood. Mm -hmm. And... We don't get really told much about that, but, you know, maybe this battle with the necromancer was just this huge big deal or something, you know. Although Gandalf feels different, I think you can buy that they're the same character, just a character who evolves.
0: It should be noted, for all the people who are non-Lord of the Rings nerds, the necromancer is Sauron. So that also foreshadows the rise of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. But we're never explicitly told that. On that note, we can talk about, like, Gandalf the character. Because in this book, Gandalf is just a good old smart aleck. Mm -hmm. He's always joking around. He's always blowing smoke rings. The way he introduces himself is, I am Gandalf, Gandalf. and Gandalf means me. (laughs) And that's kind of his role throughout this book, is just playing the kind of wise weirdo that's on the sidelines and comes into the rescue when very convenient and shows up at the end of the book to once again be the wise weirdo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, now that that wasn't entertaining at points um like there's this great moment where he's leaving them in murkwood where it's like and because he had to have the last word (laughs) he like shouts back to like stay on the path but like i will say as much as i i praise bilbo and i do really enjoy bilbo as a hero and his development and everything i think unfortunately like every single other character is pretty much one character trait and gandalf is yeah the character trait of smart alec wizard who is there to help solve problems before Bilbo can do it himself. So I think, like, both him and some of the other dwarves, like, Thorin's, like, big character trait is that he's kind of, like, a blowhard. He just, like, is always, like, over-talking and stuff, and he wants his mountain back, and that's that's pretty much him. And Philly is, like, the youngest of the dwarves, and Bombfur, who's one of the other dwarves, is, like, the fat dwarf. (laughs) Other people don't really have growth or personality traits. Right. In fact, most of the time the dwarves are kind of treated as one entity. They normally all kind of act in sync with each other. And we're given a lot of vast generalizations about dwarves. So I think that was probably one of the hardest things for me is that like, I think like, you have 12 or 13 dwarves, sorry. <laughs> and I wasn't sure why we needed 13 when so many of them did absolutely nothing.
0: Right. I think it was just part of the joke that like 13's an unlucky number. So then they need a 14th, which is the justification for bringing Bilbo along. And that's kind of played out where Bilbo is incredibly lucky. I'm lucky.
1: That's not a superpower. Yeah, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yeah, it is. No, it isn't. It is. No, it
2: isn't.
0: Yeah, it
1: It is. It really isn't. No, it isn't. Yes, it is.
0: Told you. It's remarkable. But it is kind of set up in the book because he, he is described as lucky number 14 because he's the one that ensures they did that they don't have unlucky 13 it's played for a silly joke you could probably have just had six dwarves and then just said Mm -hmm. bilbo is lucky number seven and that's gonna bring extra luck to the adventure and that would be fine where you could at least have all the dwarves at least say one line of dialogue Um, but I, I do suppose that like Tolkien is less interested in the individual characters than he is in the larger, more global concerns that he had about building this world. And to go into a little bit of the history, a lot of this book is kind of focused on reclaiming these different fantasy tropes and characters. So... You have the elves who, before this, were just kind of like silly fairy characters. And our first introduction to elves is at Rivendell, where they kind of play that silly fairy style of character. And they're singing songs, and they're going tee hee <laughs> But then you get introduced to the Mirkwood elves, who are very different elves and are the kind of elves that we now understand to be Tolkien elves. Same thing with the Dwarves. Before uh, Tolkien came along, Dwarves were kind of like the stock, silly, comic relief character. In this book, the Dwarves first start out as that style of character they're very silly they're making a muck That's of everything they're throwing bag bilbo's sweet. dishes around thorn specifically is described as really i think as you said a blowhard you can't really take him seriously but as the book goes on the dwarves gradually change and they become more serious, and you start to get a sense of who they are as a people. So I think this book does a lot in reclaiming these style of characters that if you look at it globally, it's like, oh, that's interesting. But within just this story, it is literally 13 dwarves, where only five of them, less than half of the dwarves actually speak. And even then... You know, the only dwarves that we really get any extended time with are Balin and Thorin. Keely and Feely, a little bit, but not really. And then Bomfer is coming in last, but his role is basically just to be fat.
1: Yeah. I want to just pause here on that because the extended fat joke of his entire existence is not fun or great. Yeah. And I think, like, if we're talking about reclaiming the dwarves as not stereotypical, I mean, like, that was. He was rough the entire time because he did, does pretty much nothing but complain. He is the one who most consistently screws up their plans, makes a fool of himself. And I think, you know, there, there are definitely moments with the dwarves that are, that are good. I mean, like Thorne's death scene, I thought was, you know, a little, a little melodramatic, but it was good, especially because like Bilbo just goes off and cries afterwards and, and we're allowed to kind of sit with him crying for a sec. And it's a very, like, noble death for Thorin. But, you know, there's also... So much of the time, the dwarves have no clue what they're doing (laughs) and are relying on Gandalf and Bilbo to figure it out for them. It's hard to really take them seriously for me because they have no plan... Like, they have not figured this out in any way, shape, or form other than they wish to go do it. They need Gandalf to tell them about the back door to their own mountain, which, to be fair, he found out from, like, Thorin's father, but they need Bilbo then to, like, first Gandalf helps save their lives multiple times, and then Bilbo does. And they're constantly volunteering Bilbo for all the <laughs> sh** duties and yeah. things. And only Balin is brave enough to come even the slightest way into the mountain with Bilbo originally. And so I think it's it's hard to, to really respect them a lot of the time because there's just this, um, let me find the line that I'm specifically thinking of where Tolkien just sums up the doors and I was like, that's this sad.
0: I think I know.
1: Let's see who can find it first. Yeah. <laughs> The most that can be said for the dwarves is this. They intended to pay Bilbo really handsomely for his services, they'd brought him to do a nasty job for them, and they did not mind the poor little fellow doing it if he would. But they would have done their best to get him out of trouble if he got into it, as they did in the case of the trolls at the beginning of their adventure, etc, etc. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but decent enough people like Thorin and company, if you don't expect too much. In some ways, I enjoy that. They're not just these hugely heroic people. But also, there's this idea, like, if you don't expect too much from them, like, that one can't expect that much from the dwarves. I would have liked to see a little greater variety, like, right before that, Balan's the only one who agrees to walk in a little, but, like, both Philly and Killy show that they are kind of, they feel somewhat obligated to. They're, like, shown to be, like, shifting their feet, like, they're uncomfortable with the fact that they're saying no to this. It would have been nice to see a little more variety, just in some of them. They don't have to be hugely brave, but to seem more than just this kind of monolith of dwarfdom, where like you know they're always looking solely to Bilbo for ideas, and he's always getting them out of trouble, and then none of them are brave enough to like do more than go a little ways into the mountain with him.
0: I I, yeah, I agree with you. I loved that line because I think this book. It does so much to dispel the idea of the hero, of the guy who is always brave, always does the right thing. There are no heroes in the traditional sense in this party, and so I love that line of just allowing dwarves and Bilbo, and even Gandalf to some degree, to be flawed characters, where where it can be a little problematic. And this this is sort of a different side to it, where it's worth noting that for the Dwarvish language, at least, Tolkien derived it from Semitic languages, and it's hard to avoid the, if you will, Semitic flavorings of the dwarves and how obsessed with gold they are and how they they can be cowardly and self-centered and pompous well, and even, full of themselves.
1: Even some of the physical descriptions of them. Like, you know, there's a lot of focus on their noses and stuff. Yes. Obviously has some anti-Semitic history.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's just a thing. And it's unfortunate. And it's there. And you can't ignore it. But I, I do think part of the global comparison is that when Dane... And his dwarves come in. I mean, they're girded for war. They are, like, the best soldiers and the best craftspeople. They are very serious. And if you didn't take the dwarves seriously before, you do now. And I think that's part of this reclamation project that Tolkien enacted for himself. The approach isn't perfect, but hugely influential. Because if you think about dwarves now... Or elves, or dragons, or anything, you're probably thinking of some variation of a Tolkien elf or a Tolkien dwarf. Which there's a joke in there about Tolkien, Tolkien, there's something there. Somebody come up with that joke and send it to us. Seriously, somebody send us that joke. And if you do, you just might hear it on the next episode of our Hobbit Reread. See you then.
2: We must away